Well, good morning, Gateway family. It's great to see you on this beautiful fall morning. We'll turn to Ephesians chapter 4. So we continue our journey through Paul's letter to Ephesians just to remind you of where we are. Ephesians 1 through 3, our identity in Christ, what God has done for us, how we are different because of who he is. Now, 4, 5, and 6 is how we live out that identity. Chapters 4 began for us how we walk worthy, how we now live out who God has said we are. We've seen a lot of different practical exhortations, practical admonitions for how we're to live out our Christian faith and our faith in Christ. As we come to Ephesians chapter 4 this morning, we come to the topic of speech. Now you may be thinking, wait, wait, haven't we talked about speech more than once already? If you're thinking that, you're exactly right. Paul has talked about speech three times in chapter 4 already. Chapter 4 verse 15, we already saw that we're to speak the truth in love. In chapter 4 verse 25, we're to put off all falsehood and speak the truth. In chapter 4, verse 26, we saw that we're to put off sinful anger. And though that's often internal, it often is expressed outwardly with our words as well. So we already tackled speech in those three ways. And we come to a fourth verse about speech this morning. Is there anything else for Paul to say about speech? And well, he's just getting started because there is more about our speech. And not just today, there's still two more verses to come in the weeks to come, more about our speech. So why is there so much about our speech? In chapter 4 here, as he's beginning to lay out how we live out our identity in Christ, why does he talk about our speech, our speech, our speech, our speech, our speech, and our speech? Why over and over again is this topic coming up? And the reason, friends, is because our words are powerful. Because our words can have a huge impact. I want you to see Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21, just the, the impact of our words. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Friends, our words can destroy and our words can bring life. Our words can be used by the enemy to create division, to bring people down. And our words can be used by God to build people up. Think of it this way. You familiar with a scalpel, a little metal, sharp little thing that can cut? In the hands of a surgeon, a scalpel can give life. It can cut out tumors. It can heal wounds. It can bring great healing to the body. But in the hands of a toddler, that same scalpel... Can, can create great havoc and great destruction. Or in the hands of a criminal, can kill people. The same tool can give life and can give death. And so it is with our words. In Proverbs chapter 12, verse 18, I want you to see this. There's one whose rash words are like sword thrust, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Our words can either be like a sword thrusting into someone to kill them, or our words can also bring healing. Our words are powerful. They have a huge impact. Yet so often, friends, our words do not bring healing. Too often, our words are those sword thrusts. Too often, even as believers, our words are like the scalpel in the hands of the toddler that brings destruction. And the reality is every single one of us struggles with it. James chapter 3, verse 2 gives us a sobering warning about that. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Friends, the reality is I struggle in my speech and you struggle in your speech. There is no one who's arrived at perfection in their speech. And so Paul knows that. And so Paul addresses our speech over and over and over and over again. He also knows the great danger that comes when we stumble in this way. We stumble in our speech. It has profound implications. Just a few verses later in James chapter 3, verse 6, we see the reality of this. We've seen this before, but it bears reminding today. The tongue is a fire. Think of that description of the power of our words. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, 
setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. Then in verse 7, he goes on. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. In verse 9, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Our tongues can bless, our tongues can curse. They can be like a scalpel that brings healing, they can be like a scalpel that brings destruction. So with that in view, I want us to see one thing this morning. More of this a question to consider as we look at this verse from Ephesians. This is our idea for the morning. It's a question to consider. Does my speech cause decay or give grace? Does my speech, does your speech, does it cause decay or does it give grace? Friends, the reality is, like I mentioned, our tongues can be used by God to bring healing, to bring grace to people, to build people up. And our tongues can also be used by the adversary to create division within the body, to create doubt in people's lives, to bring hurt to people. And that is a sobering reality, that even as followers of Christ, apart from the grace of God, the enemy can use my words and your words to accomplish his purposes, to hurt and create decay. Does my speech cause decay or give grace? Well, as we read our text this morning, I want you to look for, obviously, what you're going to expect or to put off a certain type of speech and put on another type of speech. But what type of speech are we supposed to put on this morning. It's not just enough for us to not cause decay, but what does Paul have in view? What is us as redeemed people of God, what is our speech supposed to look like? So let's look at Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look at just one verse this morning. That's going to be verse 29. Can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Would you pray with me? Father, I do pray this morning as we look at this one short verse in Ephesians chapter 4, that this would come alive to us, that your Holy Spirit will breathe life into our hearts and souls through your word, through the scriptures. God, I pray this day that you would use this to sanctify me and to sanctify these precious brothers and sisters, where that warning from James 3 is so real and so sobering to us. That, Lord, we are going to stumble in many ways with our tongue. And God, we desperately need your grace. We desperately need your conviction where we've fallen short in our speech. We desperately need your grace to grow all of us in these areas. So God, would you use your word this morning to transform us, to make us more like you, to help us walk worthy of the calling we have in Christ Jesus, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So from this one verse this morning, Paul carries on the same pattern that we've seen in all these exhortations to us. We're to put off, we're to get rid of something, we're to put on something in its place. Here we're to put off What's wrong? We're to remove from our life sinful patterns of speech, and we're to put on something else. We're to put on speech that builds up, that gives grace. So let's look at that. Does my speech cause decay? That's what we're to put off. Does my speech give grace? That's what we're to put on. So let's start with the put off. Let's put off all speech that causes decay. Look back at verse 29 to the first phrase there. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Now this word corrupting, your translation might say evil talk, unwholesome talk, corrupting communication. It's all communicating the same thing. It's a Greek word, sapros. This Greek word, sapros, was not a very common word, but everywhere it's used, it's very descriptive. Paul's got a very particular image he wants us to have in mind. Anytime you see this word that's translated corrupting for us, it's always used to speak of rotting food or things that stink. It's the idea of rot, of decay is what's in mind here. In fact, in the scripture, it's used in two other places. In Matthew chapter 7, Verse 17, Jesus talks about bad trees, saffron trees that create bad fruit. 
So picture a diseased tree, a diseased apple tree or orange tree. And you walk by and you see all the fruit, and the fruit is decaying. It's moldy. It's black. It's gushy. It's, you, know, you know what it's like if you pick a, a, a rotten apple? It's not very pleasant. That's the image. It's a decaying trees with decaying fruit. He also uses it in Matthew chapter 13, verse 48, when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a net being thrown in the sea. The fish are gathered, they're brought to the shore, and you sort out the good fish from the sapros fish, from the rotten fish. So, so think about fish of the ocean. They all stink anyway, right? Now think about the rotten fish. Have you ever smelled a rotten fish? You pull out of the ocean, it's dead, and it's rotting, and it's decaying, and the flesh is falling apart, and the stench is coming out of it. Everybody ready for lunch now, right? That's the image Paul wants us to have in mind. That is a sapros fish, a decaying, corrupted, rotten fish. The kind of the gag reflex you have if you bite into an apple and it's rotten on the inside. The type of gag reflex you have if you are looking at a fish that's decaying and a stench is coming up. It's what Paul's trying to get us to communicate. There is a type of speech that we have that is as rotten as those things. And the taste we have if we bite into a rotten piece of food, the smell and the kind of gag reflex we have when we smell rotting flesh like in a fish, we're supposed to react that way to a type of our speech that rots in the same way. So what is corrupting speech? You didn't think we could make it through a verse without a list, right? After the last few weeks. What are some ways that we have corrupting speech? Well, there's a lot of ways we can have corrupting speech. And to help us search our own hearts and trusting the Holy Spirit to show us, I want to give you three broad categories this morning to think about what is corrupting speech that decays, that rots, that causes harm. Number one is profanity. Profanity is a type of corrupting speech, of unwholesome speech. Friends, I think we're pretty desensitized to it. We hear it on TV, it's in all the movies, you hear it at sporting events, you hear it every day in just conversations around town. I think a lot of times as believers, we kind of shrug our shoulders to it, we even let some of those words fly ourselves, and we don't really think it's that big of a deal. Why is profanity a type of corrupting speech that causes rot? Well, I found this really helpful. John Piper wrote about profanity once, and he listed three reasons or three types of profanity and why it's rot, why it's corrupting. First, he says profanity can be taking the name of the Lord in vain. So the first type of profanity is taking God's name in vain. You hear it all the time. People using Jesus and God, not in terms of worship, but as expressions of frustration or surprise. To take something in vain means it's worthless. To use God's name in a worthless way. In Exodus 20, in the third commandment, we're commanded not to take God's name in vain. But realize how this fits into corrupting speech. Corruption, decay, rot, is good fruit that has gone bad. The fish that was alive is now dead and rotting. It's decaying. For us to take God's name in vain is we take a name that should cause us to fall on our face in worship. We take a name that is worthy of all reverence, the name that demons tremble at, the name that angels bow down before to worship, and we take that name and we use it to express anger or surprise. We're taking something that's so good and we've rotted it when we use it that way. We've corrupted it when we use it that way. Thus, taking God's name is profanity because it's corrupting what is so good and we spoil it. That's the first type of profanity, taking God's name in vain. Second of all, some profanity is trivializing serious realities. Trivializing serious realities. Friends, hell and damnation are very real things. Hell and damnation are not some imaginary things from fairy tales. These are very real things for people who have offended God's glory, who have sinned against God and not repented of their sins. When we speak of hell and damnation, and we should because we need to warn people, we should speak of it not in a light way. We speak of it with a bit of trembling. We speak of it with tears. We speak of it with pleading with people not to go down that path. 
to trivialize those serious realities is to take words like hell and damnation and to use it to express anger or to use it to wish a team to win a sporting event or something like that. We've taken something very real, very righteous, very scary, and we've decayed it. We've rotted it by using it in such trivial ways. We do the same thing with the term holiness. You think of all the terms like holy cow and holy other four-letter words I won't repeat from the pulpit that get used all the time to express surprise. Friends, holiness is serious. God's holiness is what his character is. There are beings around his throne that all they do every day is sing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Moment by moment, they're proclaiming his holiness. God calls us to holiness. First Peter 1, he commands us to be holy as I am holy. And we take a description of the wonders of who God is and what we are called as believers to be, and we use it as an adjective for surprise. We've taken that fruit that is so good and we've rotted it. We've brought it down to a corrupt level for something it's not meant to do. We've spoiled it. So that's the second type of profanity. First was taking God's name in vain. Second was trivializing serious realities. Number three is referencing the body and sex in vulgar ways. Friends, God is the one who made the human body. It's God's design. Every body part is there by God's design. It's not some evolutionary accident. God is the creator who made us the way he made us. God is also the one who invented sex. It's his idea. He made it good. It's not a result of the fall or corruption. It's his good and perfect design. Genesis 1, he sees mankind made in his image, and it's very good. Same thing happens when we use terms for the body or terms for sex as profanity to express anger. We're taking something that is so good that God says, this is very good, and we're using it to smear other people because we're angry at them. We've taken what's good and righteous, and we have spoiled it. We have corrupted it. We've contaminated it to express our anger. Friends, all of that is profanity and so much more, and that's all corrupting talk that must be removed. So the first big category of corrupting talk is profanity. Number two is relationally destructive speech. Corrupting speech is not just four-letter words. Corrupting speech can be things that destroy other people. Gossip, slander, yes, even disguise as prayer request. Oh, you need to pray for so-and-so. Did you hear what they did last Saturday? You know, there's lots of ways we can destroy relationships with our speech with gossip and slander. Relationally destructive speech can be being spiteful, being mean-spirited. Friends, realize as well, relationally destructive speech can also be just being overly critical. There's people who have a very clean mouth in terms of profanity, but they're critical, and there's critical comment after critical comment after critical comment, and they tear people down with their very clean but very critical comments. And all that must be put off. All that type of speech is corrupt, it's spoiling because it hurts other people. We think about it this way. If you invite a friend over for dinner tonight, I would hope you would not serve them food that you know is spoiling or rot. I hope you wouldn't give them food and they bite in that apple and it's decayed on the inside. Or you give them a piece of fish that you know had decayed before you cooked it and the stench is on the table. I hope you wouldn't try to poison them in that way. We wouldn't do that with our food, but yet we intentionally do that with our words so often. The very same friends we would not poison with food, with rotten food, when, they're, when they leave, we start gossiping about them. We start judging them for decisions they have made. We start doing that when we even directly accuse them of things and we spoil them. We spoil other people's views of them through our words. And God's telling us we need to put off all types of relationally destructive speech because it corrupts other people. It spoils other people and their reputation. Third and last category of corrupting speech is false speech. I've already tackled lying and falsehood back on October 7th. If you missed that one, go back and listen to that. There's a long list of ways that we struggle with deceiving people more so than we realize. We need to put all off. But let me also remind us another type of corrupting speech that deals with falsehood is false teaching. Now, we often, we think of false teaching, we think of the TV preachers who corrupt the gospel in so many ways, and that's obviously in view here. Because if we're not careful, we can do false teaching as well. 
in our everyday conversations, when someone says they're struggling with something, oh, God understands, he's okay with it, he knows your situation. Because we give our opinions instead of the word of God so often. We teach what we think God would do in that situation versus what God has revealed he would do in that situation. We've taken the goodness of God and the perfection of his revelation. We've spoiled it. We've rotted it by casting doubt on it or making our opinions higher. There's lots of ways, friends, that we can, we can speak falsely. There's lots of ways that we can have corrupt talk, whether it's profanity, whether it's relationally destructive speech, whether it's false speech. And all of that, what do we do? Ephesians 4.29. Go back there. Regardless of what type that was, let no corrupting talk, no profanity, no relationally destructive speech, no false teaching, none of that come out of your mouths. Friends, I want to remind us God takes this command very, very seriously. Matthew chapter 12, verse 36 is one of those sobering verses in Scripture for us. Jesus says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. God takes this command about our speech so seriously. Why? Is it because he's just a prudish old grandmother sitting there being like, I can't believe they said that again. Why is God so concerned about this? He's concerned about our speech, friends, because it reveals our hearts. Our speech reveals what's in our hearts. Look at Luke chapter 6, verse 45. Jesus says, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Because if you want to know what's in our heart, does our heart love Jesus, does our heart love people? Look at your mouth. Look at my mouth. What comes out of our mouth shows what's in the heart. Because out of the abundance of our heart, our mouth speaks. Friends, if we listen to our conversations, if we run a tape over everything we've said to our kids, to our spouse, to our coworkers, to our friends at school over the last week, that's going to show what's actually happening in our hearts. We use the expression all the time, oh, I didn't mean to say that. Well, that's false. That's lying. We need to repent of that. Because we meant to say it. It came out because it was in here. We may regret saying it because of the consequence of the friends. If it came out, we meant it because it was in our heart. Things don't just come out of your mouth and be like, oh, I didn't mean to say that. No, it was in your heart already for it to come out. So our speech shows us, do we have an Ephesians 1 through 3 identity in Christ? Our speech will show, friends, if we are seated at the table of the king, if we're adopted as his children, if we belong to him, if we're in his presence, our speech is going to show that. But friends, if our heart is following after the things of the world, if our heart is bound to the enemy, if our heart is, is going after his own fleshly desires, that's going to show in our speech as well. And so the question, does my speech cause decay or does my speech give grace, is a serious question. Because if my speech is causing decay, it's because there's evil in my heart that's coming out. If my speech is giving grace, it's because God has put grace in my heart that I could not put there myself. God is so concerned about this because it shows what is in our heart. So we're commanded to put off all corrupting speech. My friends, can I remind us, this is one of those commands we cannot do in our own strength. Everything we're seeing here is something we can only do by God's grace. This is the wonder of the gospel message we celebrate. The gospel, the good news of who Jesus is. Friends, the reality is, we already saw that in James 3, I cannot change my speech, but God can. I can't change my heart that produces evil speech, but God can. The gospel message, the good news is not just, I pray this prayer so I don't go to hell. The gospel is, yes, God rescues me from my sin, but God also delivers me from his power. He puts a new heart, a new nature in us that produces new fruit, that changes us in this. And so, friends, if our speech is constantly pouring forth evil, whether it's profanity, whether it's relationally destructive things, whether it's just critical spirit that shows in our speech, whether it is speaking in vulgar ways, whatever it is, we need to go into our heart and go, Lord, what's in my heart that's producing this? And begin to plead with him to change our hearts out of this. 
But also, friends, knowing that only God can transform us in this, there's a great prayer that King David prays in Psalm chapter 141, verse 3. I want you to see it. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Friends, if we're struggling as children of God in our speech and we search our heart and we realize that we do know Christ, but it's an area of a stronghold in our lives, the first thing we do is go to him in prayer and say, God, I can't change myself. I've tried and I've fallen flat on my face, but God, you set a guard over my mouth. You keep watch over the door of my lips. You, God, transform my heart so that what comes out pleases you and blesses other people. But friends, can I also encourage you, if we're struggling in our speech, to get the community involved? I've seen very few people overcome major sin strongholds in their life on their own. God has given us brothers and sisters for a reason. This is one of the things that Paul's already taught us in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, that one of our commandments is to truth one another in love. We're to speak the truth in love. Friends, if we're struggling with whether it's anger, whether it's divisive speech, whether it's a critical spirit, whatever it is, we're going to find a lot more grace if we seek the Lord in prayer and we get other believers and say, hey, I'm struggling in my speech. Would you speak the truth in love to me? When you hear me, would you correct me? Would you help me grow in this? Friends, have we invited people into our lives to help us grow in these areas? By God's grace and the strength he provides through prayer and with community, we're to let no corrupting talk of any type come out of our mouths. Now, friends, that's only part of the command. Putting off is only half of it. As we've seen over and over, we have to replace that with something else, with the Christ-like virtue. Just because I don't swear doesn't mean that God is pleased with me. We must put something on in its place. And what do we put in its place? Look back at verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Friends, we must put on intentionally using good speech to help others. We must replace, not just I'm not going to swear, I'm not going to use profanity, I'm not going to just tear people down. I have to intentionally, by God's grace, seek to do good to other people with my speech. The word good here means useful. It means Helpful, And unless we miss what Paul's trying to say, he says, only such as is good for building up, for edifying. All throughout Ephesians 4, we've seen this passion Paul has to make sure believers are built up. We've seen it in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, that God's given us gifts to build up the body of Christ. We saw it in Ephesians 4, 15, that we're to speak the truth in love so that the body is built up in love. Paul is repeating this idea that our commission from the Lord is to build up one another with our speech. And so he hits it here again that we are to only say things that are good for building up one another. God is passionate about his church being built up. He's passionate about other believers being built up. And friends, this is amazing. He's chosen to work through you and I to build each other up. He's chosen to use our mouths, these tongues we struggle with, to help the church grow, to help other believers grow. Well, well what do we say to one another? What do we say to build one another up? Well, it's going to vary. And that's not a cop-out answer, but that's what our text actually shows us here. Look back at verse 29 again here for us. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion. Now, some translations there would say according to their needs. As fits the occasion or according to their needs are two ways of saying the exact same thing. We say whatever truth is needed to help that person. Now, we don't make up stuff to help the person. We've already dealt with falsehood in Ephesians 4, so we don't say something and lying to try to help, but we speak whatever truth is needed as fits the occasion to meet their needs. I love what Proverbs chapter 25, verse 11 says to help us understand this. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. You catch the imagery there the author of Proverbs uses? A word fitly spoken, a word spoken at the right time to meet a specific need at the right occasion 
It's like apples of gold in a setting of silver, that it has incredible beauty. When we speak to meet the need of another person, when we speak in a way that fits the occasion, it is a thing of great beauty and a thing of great value. Because God loves His church to be built up. He loves His saints to be built up. And so when we speak a right word at the right time, it's something as beautiful as gold apples and silver settings. It's as valuable as that to the Lord. My friends, there's a profound implication we don't need to miss in this. We have to be living in community if we're going to be able to speak a word in the right situation. I can't speak from a distance to know what your situation is. If we're going to speak words that are going to be fitly spoken as fits the occasion, that means I understand the occasions of your life and you understand the occasions of my life. We can't do this from a distance. That's why so much of what we've seen in Ephesians 1 through 3 is our calling together as believers in community because we can't do this without understanding one another's needs. And so we live in community. Then in community, we know at this time this person needs encouragement or now they need correction or now they need a reminder of God's promise. Or now they need to be called to repent of that sin. Or now they need instruction. Or now they just need simply to hear us praying for them. It could vary so much. But as we live in community, the Holy Spirit will show us what is needed at that point, And then we seek to live that out. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. But only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion. My friends, it gets even more stunning. Look at the next phrase in Ephesians 4.29. That... So that why do we speak in a way to build up? Why do we put off this wrong speech? We do it so that it may give grace to those who hear. What is God's grace? God's grace is His kindness to us, His blessings to us, giving us what we do not deserve. And for instance, when we put off all corrupting, decaying speech, and we put on speech that builds up, we are becoming an instrument of God's grace in other people's lies. Is that stunning? God sends His grace to other people, obviously through His Word, but also when we speak about Him to one another. Look at what Colossians chapter 4, verse 6 says to remind us of this. Let your speech always be what? Let your speech always be what? Sometimes be gracious. Always be gracious. Friends, as recipients of God's grace, He's changed us, He's blessed us, He's given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. He says, now always in your speech... Share that same grace to others. The grace I've shown to you now, you always pass them to one another. Notice this next phrase, seasoned with salt. Think about this for just a minute. Two types of speech, corrupting speech that causes decay or speech that builds up. Before the days of refrigerators, what did they put on food to keep it from decaying? Salt. Paul's got an intentional image here. It's not because he likes salty food and wants Chick-fil-A french fries, a lot of salt on them here. Seasoned with salt is an image he's using to show us that salt stops decay. Salt stops rot. It's not just enough for us to not have decaying speech. We need to have such gracious speech that it actually stops decay in one another's lives. That it stops the lies of the enemy in one another's lives. That it stops the worldliness in one another's lives. That God has given us our mouth not to further decay, but to stop decay as we speak His grace to one another in gracious ways. And then notice that last phrase, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. There's us fitting the occasion that we are living in community. We know each other's needs and fears and hopes and dreams and sin struggles and all those things so that in the right time and the right moment, by His Holy Spirit in us, we speak with salt to stop decay. We speak with His grace to one another. So again, back to my question, friends. Does my speech cause decay or give grace? Friends, as we think about that, I want to remind us of an important word in Ephesians 4.29 I wanted us not to miss. It's a four-letter word, but a good four-letter word here. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. But, what's the next word? Only. Ouch. No, Paul. 
Don't you kind of want it to be a scale that if 90% of my words build up and 10% are decaying, surely that's not that bad. That's better than the movies. I'm okay. No, he says only, so even what we saw in Colossians 4, always and only. These words are painful, but painfully true for us. He says, no corrupting talk, but only. Every moment, every day, the only thing that should be coming out of your mouth if you're a recipient of grace is things that are good, things that build up, things that give grace to those who hear. So friends, holiness is, I'm just not cussing, it's not just I'm not tearing down, it's not just I'm biting my tongue. Holiness, a life that walks worthy, is that the only things coming out of our mouth are good, building up, fitting, and give grace. So back to my question, does my speech cause decay, or does my speech day by day, consistently by the grace of God, season conversations with salt? Does my, my, does my conversation day by day regularly build people up? Does it give grace? And friends, the reality is we struggle with that. There's none of us, myself included, who can look at ourselves and say, yeah, everything I say does this. But this is a standard God calls us to, something that we cannot achieve apart from the gospel. And friends, that is the good news of the gospel. I will fall on this and you will fall on this, but when we do, we quickly, quickly repent. We repent to God and confess our sins, and we quickly run and confess our sins to the person we've hurt with our speech so we can be restored. And even our confession when we've fallen short is a means of grace to build up people when we go to them in that. Friends, does my speech cause decay or does my speech give grace? That in view, I want to ask you several questions. First of all, have you experienced God's saving grace? Friends, we can't be instruments of grace to others if we don't experience grace ourselves and understand grace. Have you experienced, not just you've prayed a prayer and done the church thing, but have you in your heart come to a place that you know that Christ is your Lord, that he has poured out every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, that you are seated at his table, that you're a child of God, and you enjoy his grace every day? Friends, if so, that's a starting point. If not, anything you try to do is going to be moralism or legalism, trying to get to God. It starts with knowing God. But then second of all, if you've experienced his saving grace, have you experienced his sanctifying grace? Sanctification is a big word that means growing in godliness. So sanctifying grace means he gives us strength to grow. Whether it's our speech, whether it's anger, whether it's sexual immorality, we don't grow with what I call white-knuckle determination where we just try harder. That's not the gospel, friends. We grow when he and his grace strengthens us and convicts us of our sin and convicts us of our speech patterns and shows us that we can change. Have you experienced his sanctifying grace? Friends, if you are a child of God, he will pursue you. He will convict you. If there is no conviction in your life, no discipline when you sin, it doesn't matter how many external things you've done in the church, you're not a child of God if you can continue in sin with no conviction and no discipline. Are you experiencing his sanctifying grace? Friends, are you also experiencing God's gifting grace? where he is working through you to build up others. Not because you're so smart or so amazing, but because in his grace, he has chosen to work through you to build up his body. Friends, I hope you will think about those things, not just this morning, but in the weeks to come, because God's plan for us is to let there be no corrupting talk to come out of our mouths, but only words that are good for building up as fits the occasion that may give grace to those who hear. Friends, that's, those are fitting questions for us to think about as we come to communion. As we come to the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table. Because for us to have growth in our speech is something that you and I cannot achieve on our own. But God can. What is communion all about? What is the Lord's Supper all about? It is a reminder of the very grace of God that we've talked about. That God looked upon us who could not rescue ourselves. Who could never do enough good works to get to God. Who could never change our nature to please Him. When we had no hope of getting to Him... He made a way when it was impossible for us. When every single one of us is lost in our sins, He has made a way. 
What are we celebrating? We're celebrating the way he made for us to be restored to a right relationship with him. We've, he's made a way for our brokenness to be healed, for our broken relationship with him to be restored. How did he do it? It's fitting to remind ourselves of what we're celebrating here. He did it by becoming a man, what we'll celebrate at Christmas in about two months. The God who's always existed, before time even began, before there was even time, chose to humble himself and become a man, be born in a manger, and live a perfect life, not just so we can be like, look at me, but he lived a perfect life so we could fulfill the law, so he could take our punishment. Unless he is innocent, unless he is perfect, unless he's never disobeyed his parents, unless he's never said a bad word, unless he's never gotten simply angry, unless he's perfect, he cannot take our place. So Jesus lives a perfect life to fulfill the law that you and I could not fulfill. He willingly goes to the cross and lets himself be nailed to a cross, lets himself suffer unjustly so that all of our sin, for all these wrong words we've said, for all these divisive words we've said, for all these critical words we've said, for all these sinfully angry comments we've made, for all the sexually immoral thoughts we've had, he took all that and everything we've done and that all got put on him on the cross. So when Jesus is hanging there and says, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? He is experiencing the wrath that you and I deserved because a holy God could not overlook sin. God in his holiness can't be like, oh, I like him. I'm going to sweep that under the rug. No, his holiness requires him to punish sin. If he does not punish every sin, he is not holy and he is not God anymore. And so Jesus took the wrath that we deserve. My friends, realize what happened on that cross. Not only did he take our wrath, but all of his perfect righteousness was given to us. And so though I've messed up in my speech over and over and over again with my wife, with my kids, with friends, I've messed up in my speech so many times as you have done. When the Father looks at me, he doesn't look and be like, man, he messed up, he messed up, he messed up. He sees the perfect speech of Christ. He sees Christ's righteousness was put on my account so I can ascend his holy hill and be in his presence because he sees me covered in Christ's righteousness. And if you're a child of God, he's done that for you. As well, We are celebrating that, but remember when Christ bore that penalty and we got his righteousness, he got the sin. He didn't stay there. On the third day, he rose again. He defeated death, showing us that our sins had been paid for, that he had conquered that. That is what we are celebrating in communion, that we are remembering the grace of God that has taken away all the punishment for our sins and the grace of God that has given us his righteousness, the grace of God that is enabling us to now walk in holiness because we have a new nature. But friends, though that's free for us, it was costly. It cost him his body being broken in the cruelest form of torture ever invented. It caused his blood being poured out so that we could have our sins forgiven. Without the shedding of blood, Scripture says, there is no forgiveness of sins. So, for instance, we think about all these admonitions in Ephesians of how we're to live. Communion drives us back to the only way we can even be called to do this and find the hope of this because of what Christ has done for us. We come this morning to celebrate that grace, to remember that grace, to worship him for his grace, to thank him for that grace. But friends, we also come to pause and make sure there's no unconfessed sin in our life. Because I fall short, you fall short, we all are in need of God's grace. And we don't come to this table in a rushed way, in a hurry way. We come with reflection saying, Spirit of God, search my heart. If there's any unconfessed sin, please show me. We come to this to pause and reflect and let the Spirit of God convict us of areas of our lives where we're not walking worthy of our calling so that we could be quick to repent and experience His forgiving grace in these things. With all that in view, friends, communion is a time just for believers. If you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're a child of God, that you've been adopted, you've been chosen, you belong to him, all the imagery of Ephesians 1 through 3, and you see it because it's producing change in your life, you are welcome to come celebrate with us. 
If you're not sure you're a child of God, friends, there is no shame to staying where you're seated. No one's going to look at you funny. No one's going to be embarrassed, but you're not going to be embarrassed by that. Use this time either to come celebrate because you're a child of God or to stay in your seat and just talk to the Lord. You may think, oh, this is crazy. If so, that's fine. Talk to the Lord. He has you here for a reason. Say, I'm not even sure what this is all about. God, if you're real, show yourself to me. Would you take that step? Say, God, if you're real, show yourself to me. Reflect, pray, ask God to show himself to you if you're not sure. But if you're a believer, it doesn't matter if you're a member of Gateway or not. If you're a follower of Christ, you are welcome to come to celebrate God's grace and what he's done for you. In just a moment, we're going to have, you, we're going to have the, uh, the deacons come bring you section by section down front to receive the bread and to get the juice. I'd encourage you as you get it to go back to your seat and talk to the Lord. There's no rush on this. Pray. Make sure there's no unconfessed sin. Take time to remember his body and his blood being shed for you. Take time to celebrate, to thank him for his grace. And then whenever you're ready at that point, take and worship him and thank him through the ordinances. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to ask our praise team to come. Then our deacons will direct you from there as we close our service with this act of worship today. Father God, we are so, so very thankful for your grace. God, your grace that looked upon sinners like us who are so unworthy, who are so unable to save ourselves, who are so unable to transform and change ourselves. And you looked upon us in our broken state, and you loved us so. God, I pray this day for myself and all those who are children of yours, that today as we celebrate communion, as we remember your, your body being broken, Lord Jesus, as we remember your blood being poured out, that you would stir our hearts with deeper affections for you. You would stir our hearts with greater thankfulness for all that you have done for us. And I pray this would be a time of joy and reverence, all at the same time as we celebrate your grace. Friends, if there's anyone here who has unconfessed sin in their life that they've not been dealing with, I pray right now, Lord Jesus, you send your Holy Spirit to convict, not to, not to bring them to a place of crushing them, but a place of brokenness, where they'd be quick to confess, your, to confess their sins, God. You promise if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I pray today for those in this room who are struggling with sin strongly, so today they would find forgiveness and cleansing because of the blood of Christ. Lord, for those in this room who are not followers of you, God, I pray they wouldn't feel any embarrassment right now as we celebrate this, no sense of shame, but Lord, a sense of need for you, a sense of longing in their heart that perhaps they've never experienced. God, to want to experience this grace that is so sweet and so joyous. So God, we pray that you'll have your way as only you can, and we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.